Okay, so yeah, should we do acid corbidism then? Yeah, hang on. I've got a kid trying to talk to me. What are you sure. doing? Sure. It's on radio as well. No, you can't, sweetie. It's a grown-up podcast. <laughs> Sweetie, you've got to be good. You promised to be good. Okay. All right. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jeremy Gilbert. We spoke about the concepts of acid Corbynism and acid communism and why transforming human subjectivity through practices of collective joy derived from the 1960s counterculture is so important to building a successful left project. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is After Geoengineering by Holly Buck. The window for action on climate change is closing rapidly. Climate restoration will require not just innovative technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere, but social and economic transformation. Rejecting the idea that technological solutions are some kind of easy workaround After Geoengineering outlines the kind of social transformation that will be necessary to repair our relationship to the Earth if we are to continue living here. Visit versobooks.com for more information. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Pol Theory Other. There's also an Instagram page and the handle for that is at Politics Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London, and he's also the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism. He's also a co-host of Navarra Media's ACFM show, where you can find further discussion of the topics we chatted about in today's interview. Jeremy previously appeared on PTO to discuss Maurizio Lazzarato's work. Uh, Do check out episode 10 if you'd like to hear that interview. Before we go into more detail about the topic, could you just say something briefly about the terms acid communism and, and acid Corbynism, you know, where they come from and what they sort of broadly describe? So acid communism is a term that Mark Fisher used. It was going to be the title of his book that he was working on uh, when he died, you know, very sadly. And, I mean, he only got as far as, as kind of an unfinished introduction to the book. Mark got the term from an interview in which David Tennant was talking about the biopic of 
R.D. Lang, the Scottish like radicals uh, psychologist that he was playing in the film. And in the interview with Tennant, Tennant describes R.D. Lang as a sort of acid Marxist. And Mark got kind of excited about this because he'd been thinking about wanting to do something around the sort of legacy of the counterculture. And so acid communism, he adapted from the term acid Marxism. And acid communism, it was Mark's name for a very general, quite diffuse sort of set of ideas, feelings, affects, demands, desires, which you can see as informing the politics of the liberation movements like black power, women's liberation movement, gay liberation, the politics of the new left uh, in its most democratic iterations in the 60s and 70s, and the politics of the broader counterculture, including the sort of psychedelic movement uh, in the 60s and 70s. So it's this broad rejection of the sort of limitations imposed by advanced consumer capitalism in the name of some more utopian alternative. And then I think it's always important to, to specify that. What he's using the term to refer to is this quite diffuse sense. And, and partly, you know, he was interested in the, this after, you know, being getting involved with some work with Plan C, the Libertarian Communist Group, and after, you know, reading some kind of important recent history of the period and after talking to people like me about our kind of um, attitudes to that period and its legacy. And it marked a pretty significant break with his earlier kind of attitudes which were really shaped by the sort of post-punk consensus of the you know, 80s and 90s, which just dismissed like, the hippies and all their works. So it wasn't referring either to the very, very specific groups of kind of psychedelic militants who like were around in 1970, people like the Weathermen who were kind of planning you know, anti-capitalist and anti-war you know, terrorist actions while mm. on LSD. And also, sort of intriguingly, he wasn't referring to really the sort of libertarian communist tradition of people like Felix Guattari and Antonio Negri, which I sort of think if you just use the term acid communism so out of the blue, then, you know, and, and, no, and you hadn't ever heard of Mark Fisher, but you might think that's what it would be referring to, because mm. that's this sort of post-68 sort of libertarian communism. Is R.D. Lang, you know, somewhat connected, I mean, in terms of being part of the anti-psychiatry movement? Not really, no. I mean, I don't. Mm. Mark wasn't particularly interested in Lang, except in the very generic sense, the very general sense that Lang is is one of a whole bunch of people who are thinking about the fact that well, a, a lot of kind of mental health issues that people seem to have, like the negative mental health issues people have uh, in advanced capitalist societies, are probably a result of the alienating effects of living with capitalism. Uh, rather than say just just sort of uh, you know to do with their relationship with their mum and dad or anything else, but I mean Lang as such wasn't like he's not a big influence on Marx thinking. I mean if there was anyone who Marx was really interested in in that vein in his in his kind of later years, it was the British sort of Marxist psychologist David Smale. But the fact but Lang is this sort of intriguing figure. He was like that. He was sort of an iconic figure of the counterculture for a while. He was one of the organisers of the Dialectics of Liberation Conference at the Roundhouse in Camden in 1967, uh, which you can still watch all over on YouTube. But he was also a very problematic figure, Lang. You know, he sort of, you know, had abuse, quite abusive relationships with a lot of his patients, quite authoritarian relations. I mean, really, he sort of discredited the British anti-psychiatry movement 
by the end of the 70s um, and you know people like Qatari for example didn't really want to have anything to do with him and also the other sort of British psychotherapy people didn't either so the term acid was coined by Matt Full, who's a, like a friend of mine and is a kind of labour activist, a momentum activist, and was kind of a, around the groups of people who were organising the World Transform Festival. So people knew, like it, it had been sort of widely circulated that, you know, Mark Fisher had been working on a book called Acid Communism, but nobody really knew what it was about. And I, I think at, at that time, very few people had read the kind of unpublished, you know, unfinished introduction to the unfinished book but but matt full had heard the phrase acid uh, corbynism acid communism rather than was sort of playing with it and so this idea sort of came to the attention of the people organizing the world transformed and charlie clark who's one of the people who set up world transformed phoned me up and said what do you think about acid corbynism as a potential concept and as a potential theme for a session at the event and you know we could make it but partly a sort of tribute to Mark, partly about the sort of politics of the late, you know, of things like dance culture, which, you know, he sort of knew I was involved in, partly about the idea of consciousness raising, which is one of the things Mark talks about in that essay that he'd done a couple of talks about for Plan C, I think, that had been quite widely sort of publicised and sort of circulated on YouTube. And so Charlie sort of brought me this idea, this term, this idea for a session. But the idea was that, well, I would sort of, you know, if I thought it was a good idea, I would sort of develop it and sort of coordinate an event under that theme at the at the conference. I shouldn't say conference. They call it a festival of ideas. Um, so a group of us kind of, you know, got together to organise this session at the World Transformed on under the heading sort of Acid Corbynism. And the people who actually spoke in the event that we organised there was me... Keir Milburn from Plan C, who'd been involved with some of the, the work that they had done around the idea of consciousness raising and the idea mm. of the consciousness raising group as a, an organisational form, so inspired by the women's liberation movement. And Lynn Siegel, who, I mean, if listeners don't know, who is a you know, very well-known uh, feminist, uh, socialist feminist academic and, and activist you know, of long standing, who's been around the kind of libertarian strands of the Labour left since the 1970s and actually was has actually was personally involved with getting Jeremy Corbyn like in, first nominated as a parliamentary candidate. And the theme of the discussion was really about what would it mean to try to take seriously the legacy of the counterculture as classically conceived sort of in the late 60s and early 70s in the context of mainstream parliamentary politics or electoral politics in the context of the historic opening which Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party seemed to offer. So the event was very popular. I mean, it was bright and it was very sunny. Everybody was excited because the election had gone so well a few months earlier. So there was a lot of excitement. And then I got asked, you know, to sort of write articles by various outlets explaining what acid communism meant and you know, asked to go around and do talks about it. And it's become a sort of, you know, self-generating sort of discursive engine. But I mean, mostly what acid corbinism consists of is talking about acid corbinism <laughs> so far. So, and in fact, the most substantial manifestation of acid corbinism as, as a project is the sort of podcast that we launched on Navara called the ACFM because we couldn't really decide. We wanted some ambiguity about, as to whether it was about acid communism or acid corbinism. 
because that's a I mean, ecumenism is, is a term that I, you know, I sort of go back and forth whether I really like it or not, because I do. I sort of sometimes I don't really like it because I sort of think that Marx appeal to the term communism at that time was coming out of a sort of moment in British left intellectual culture where by people sort of influenced by Zizek or Badiou were sort of calling themselves communists, designating their, you know, their supposed hostility to neoliberalism, but without any sort of meaningful reference to the actual history of, say, the communist movement, the communist party. And it seemed a bit sort of faddish to me. Mm. I, I sort of found it quite appealing in its kind of unapologeticness, I suppose. I mean, you know, I first sort of got politically active in the 90s and it felt like a period where you sort of had to sort of apologise for being for being on the left. And, um, you know, back then I sort of self-defined as, as an anarchist and I, I think that was partly because it didn't have quite the same... It, it seems bizarre now to think that we were going around describing ourselves as anarchists in order to sound more plausible, but, it, you know, at the time it did seem more plausible than describing ourselves as, as communists. Well, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, obviously, there are lots of specific reasons why different sets of people have adopted the term. So there are lots of people who start off as anarchists and, and then they read a bit of Negri or something and decide they're communists. <laughs> and that's that's and that's different from the, the people who read Zizek and decide they're communists, who, who, who I find the sort of most annoying. And all of this and this is all a very different set of experiences to, to someone like me who can who can remember the 80s. So remember when there were the Communist Party of Great Britain was still like an active political force. And it, I mean, it's still, and the Communist Party of Britain around the Morning Star today is still an active political force. And and to me, really, you know, a communist means you agree you think Bakunin was wrong in his debate with Marx in the 1870s. And you think the Mensheviks, the Mensheviks were wrong and the Bolsheviks were right. Uh, you know, in, in 1905, and both of those positions are clearly mistaken. You know, <laughs> history has clearly demonstrated those positions to be mistaken. So this, that's my my own feeling about it. But on the other hand, I, I also love the term massive communism, and I sort of completely understand why, it's, and I sort of embrace it as well. So, you know, partly because of its kind of poetic force, partly because of its sort of um, the kind of juxtaposition between sort of acid and communism makes a very clear sort of negation of all the kind of negative history of communism. Uh, partly because at a philosophical, conceptual level, actually, I would ally myself with people like Lazzarato and Guattari and Negri more closely than with anyone else. Hmm. And, I, and I think if any group of people have actually tried to sort of pursue a, a philosophical and political project, which you could sort of meaningfully designate as acid communists, it's actually them. So for all those reasons, I really like it. Um, but also, but I think it's interesting to contrast it with acid Corbynism because, because I think in some ways acid Corbynism is, in some ways, is a more challenging concept simply because it, yeah, you're not just designating some kind of utopian set of aspirations and possibilities. You're trying to think about, well, what does it mean actually to bring that stuff into a sort of political mainstream? But also you can't have the concept of acid Corbynism without the, the concept of acid communism. I've sort of come to realise so the two go together. Like when the group of us who were doing the podcast use an adjective, we just we tend to talk about being AC rather than committing ourselves to whether we're talking about being acid communist or acid Corbynist. But I think acid Corbynism it does present a particular set of challenges. I mean, it's I mean it's, it does present a set of challenges which just calling yourself an acid communist doesn't necessarily. You, know, you can call yourself an acid communist and say, well, yeah, what I want is a completely free kind of utopian negation of all capitalist oppression. 
But if you call it, if you say what you want is Nazi Corbynism, I mean, it's sort of a joke. I mean, we've always intended it to be a light-hearted sort of discourse, and, and we don't expect we don't expect Jeremy to sort of get up in Parliament and declare his, you know, declare the legitimacy of Nazi Corbynism, and the Labour Party's ideology. But we do think there's a serious question, and it is a really serious question. And the serious question is, well, what you know, what happens if you take the legacy of the counterculture seriously, and if you take it seriously the observation that it's very clear now in 2019, even much clearer than it would have been to lots of people in 1972, that all of the questions being raised by the counterculture at its moment of high utopian radicalism were exactly the right questions. And in fact, they're now questions which is very clear that if they're not answered, then human civilization is completely doomed. Ecological politics was just was just part of the kind of hippie fringe, like in the early 1970s. It's now absolutely clear that, like, unless it's taken deadly seriously, we're all dead. It's absolutely clear that a kind of unmitigated, highly competitive, intensive, compute, you know, consumer capitalism, combined with kind of advanced digital technologies, just drives people insane. You know, it just makes people miserable and it drives people insane and that you just can't, you, you human beings can't live that way. And that the sort of questions the counterculture was asking about, you know, how you find a way of living together freely, which is in a way which is also collective, um, were absolutely the right questions. I think it's also clear as well that, you know, you think about some of the contemporary debates around identity politics that, well, almost every way that people have come up with addressing questions like, how to fight racism, you know, how to fight patriarchy and misogyny, etc., which depart in any significant way from the positions of the sort of women's liberation movement and you know, the black freedom struggle at that time. It just you know, is a dead end. You know, it does, those, I mean, I sort of grew up, I sort of came of age at the end of the 80s and, you know, it was axiomatic within sort of political theory and, and even sort of cultural theory, those sort of movements have been terribly naive and we needed these much more nuanced understandings of, you know, the nature of gender, the nature of race and the way in which, um, you know, individuals related to those things. And uh, there was some truth to that, but broadly speaking, the kind of, you know, rejection of the legacy of sort of collective struggle, of sort of utopian aspiration, which recognises that, you know, the struggle against racism, for example, is one that everybody has to be involved in and, and, and involves important stakes for everybody. The rejection of that, or the kind of departure from that, just leads you down its complete, you know, political blind alleys, I think. And so I think there's something, there is something really important about claiming that legacy of the kind of radicalism of the late 60s and early 70s and saying that it's not a question of nostalgia it's a question of understanding the the questions that were being posed and not just the questions that were being posed but just the forms of politics that were being striven for in that moment are in some sense absolutely necessary still on that question of consciousness raising so i think you know on the left i think typically when people hear about consciousness raising groups they'll think of it in terms of you know, sort of participants coming together and sort of seeing that the suffering they're experiencing is, is a collective suffering and that their problems aren't, you know, simply personal problems. But obviously, and, and you point to it in your writing, the notion of consciousness raising has more ambitious connotations of sort of reconceiving how we think of our own subjectivity and, and attempting to overcome the sort of intensely individualizing effects of contemporary neoliberalism could you talk a little bit about that and also do you think that that kind of project is you know really sort of crucial to an anti-capitalist project because I, I feel like 
on bits of the left, on parts of the left, I think there is a, a sense that some of this stuff is a bit of a luxury almost, that it's not, you know, key to, you know, getting to where we want to go. Yeah, well, I think it is central. And yeah, I, I can speak to all that. So the Consonance Raising Group is the basic organisational form of the women's liberation movement in, in the early 70s. And Consonance Raising Groups are groups of where women will, will meet. And as you say, they'll talk about their lives. They'll also talk about some of the fem- feminist literature they've been reading. And, you know, they will come to an understanding of the kind of fact that they share certain problems, they share certain interests, that they're not alone. And I would say, yeah, you're right. And I, I think the idea that the consciousness raising group has a sort of higher function than that, not that higher, actually, but a kind of additional function in terms of breaking down any kind of um, individualism. I would say is sort of implicit. I don't know, actually, we're planning, we are planning to for the ACFM radio show and podcast we are planning to sort of interview at least one person who was directly involved in women in women's liberation consciousness raising groups about this uh, so i would really need to wait until then to be able to say definitely how people thought about uh, the sort of status of individualism although i think for the most part people's understanding of it as problematic would have been implicit more than it being seen as something they were really focused on partly because you know this is at the end of the early 70s, it was the end of the long period of post-war social democracy. And so liberal individualism is recognised by sections of the new left as a, still a key part of the culture and something you have to sort of fight against. But it's not it doesn't take it's not as obviously central as it becomes after Thatcherism. If you see what I mean, it's not it's not so obvious that that is like the thing. So people are worried about that, but they're also worried about patriarchy. They're worried about social conservatism. They're worried about hierarchy. They're worried about the kind of inflexibility of what seems to be mainstream culture at that time. So, so I mean, there's a sense in which they actually want to increase the degree of individualization in in some sense, but embedding it within a collectivity at the same time, right? I wouldn't say increase individualization. I'd say the degree of liberation. Mm. And I'd say that what's implicit, and in some places it becomes explicit in the politics of those radical movements at the time, is an understanding that freedom is not, as the liberal tradition conceives it, a property of individuals. That you know, we want to maximize freedom, but freedom is property that, is, that kind of um, pertains to collective situations and sets of relationships rather than just being the property of individuals that you can increase or decrease. I mean, my absolutely favourite sort of anecdote kind of illustrating that uh, from that moment is when the British Gay Liberation Front, uh, as distinct from the American one, the small radicals of gay liberation group, sort of took a position where they rejected the terms of the Wolfenden Report, which had been the 1957 British government report, which eventually led to the 1967 decriminalisation of homosexuality between consenting men over the age of 21. And they rejected it precisely because the terms of reference of the Wolfenden Report said that was sex between adults is a private matter. And they were directly influenced by the women's liberation movement and, you know, the claim that the personal is political. And they said, no, it's wrong to say sex is just a private matter. It's all, it's always a social matter. It's always, it's something that should be politicised in the sense that everybody should be able to talk about it. Everybody should be able to sort of engage with it and think about the power relationship involved. And for me, that is a very, very impressive sort of level of political consciousness to get yourself to, you know, especially given that the gay liberation movement was so was just in its infancy. So very, very impressive. 
and I think it's also that I think you find similar ideas, either explicit or or implicit, in the politics of the Black Panthers, in the kind of practices of the commune movement at the time. I mean, you could also say there's a sort of anti-individualism is carried to its absolute extremes in, say, the Maoist, you know, Maoist Cultural Revolution and in the kind of Maoist, the politics of Maoism and the Maoist sects in, this, in the 70s, uh, in where just having any kind of personal identity is regarded as, you know, sort of a, a deviation from proletarian correctitude. And I think that's not where we want to go. <laughs> yeah. But I would say you can sort of see where they're coming from in a way uh, you can see in that they you know what they're trying to do is figure out a way of deconstructing the liberal subject hmm. and of course the point that mark makes in his essay on acid communism the aim of, sort of deconstructing the liberal subject is also part of the aim of the psychedelic movement i mean the psychedelic movement wants to use it wants to use lsd to, as it put it, put of expand people's consciousness. But what it means to expand people's consciousness there is to, you know, is to achieve a sort of mystical union with the cosmos in which you realise the illusory nature of your usual sort of you know, individualistic conception of yourself. And Marx sort of makes a lot, and, and this is very, very important, I think it's a really important sort of um, observation of Marx, that there's this continuity between the psychedelic movement, wanting to do that, the fact that the psychedelic movement's desire for consciousness expansion really does it's not just the preserve of sort of intellectuals you know from harvard or in upstate new york or san francisco that it really extends into the mainstream of popular culture you know via sort of the beatles and people like this becoming very taken with the idea and experimenting with consciousness expansion and that there clearly is this this real continuity between the psychedelic idea of consciousness expansion the, and this sort of, uh, you know, the political idea of consciousness raising. And, uh, and there's, a constant, there's a really interesting continuity between, between all of these ideas. And I think, again, you know, part of the kind of acid communist, acid communist project is to think about, well, you know, what's going on there with those continuities and what are its potential implications for our politics. Now, I mean, coming back to that question of consciousness raising groups, okay, so there's an interesting question it's the question which is really posed by um plan c you know, the small so british libertarian communist group which has been active in its current form for about eight years i think and it was well what if you tried to have a consciousness raising group today that wasn't specifically for women or specifically for you know non-white people but was just for every anybody who wanted to take part of it and which was really trying to sort of deconstruct not just to say the effect of patriarchy on women but the effects of like neoliberalism on all of us i think what i mean actually plan c had a kind of way had a little experiment with consciousness raising groups and they and they found that about five years ago and they didn't seem to work very well and partly they didn't work very well because uh, men and women sort of experienced them very differently but then in the past sort of couple of years i know that kia and uh, nadia idol from plan c have been running at a few different events, including um, some of our uh, sort of acid Corbynism events, they've run this sort of a consciousness raising workshop, which is a little bit inspired by Marx's sort of text on acid communism and inspired by you know, some of their own ideas and practices. I mean, you just get people to sort of sit around and talk about a set of questions, really thinking about, well, what is the nature of sort of contemporary social experience, our relationship to work, to time, to boredom? You know what is our sort of status as you know neoliberal subjects? You know does you know what is it that makes us happy? I've got to say, I mean they've done a couple of these already, like before they did one at an event that I was at, so before I got to take part in one. And I would say personally, I thought 
yeah, fine, I'm glad they're doing it, but like, you know, what am I going to learn from this? I'm like, you know, I'm an international expert on neoliberalism. <laughs> like, you know, I invented, like, you know, not, you know, having a radically non-individualistic mode of subjectivity. But, you know, that was totally wrong. I mean, I actually found it really, I've found, I've, I've sort of taken part twice now with just sort of, you know, random groups of people who turn up at the mm-hmm. events. And, you know, there is something very sort of moving and, and very, both sort of relaxing and enlivening about the experience. Uh, and it is very different from any other sort of experience. I think, you know, you sort of have in daily life, unless you, you know, regularly attend a Quaker meeting or something like that. So I think it is really valuable, actually. I think it is really valuable practice. I think, you know, partly just for lack of time, for lack of, you know, for sort of focusing on other things that I don't think they or we have really had the opportunity to think much more about how to develop them as a format and i think we would probably we would very happily invite anyone else i'm sure out there listening to think about you know what it would mean to have sort of contemporary consciousness raising groups that had a sort of positive effect but i think it is really um i think yeah so my answer to your question is is positive is yes and i do think they're important i do think it's a really important sort of practice and i think that i do think it really does bring home to you the fact they're taking part in something like that that is it really is it's just a nice little conversation with a bunch of mostly with a bunch of strangers that's all it is these you know these groups we've been doing then they haven't been kind of intensive you know experiences that they haven't been like you know sort of black panther struggle sessions or kind of maoist you know self-criticism sessions or even kind of you know they haven't had the sort of emotional intensity of sort of classic women's liberation concentration groups you know they're just sort of nice conversations about topics which you don't normally talk about in a political meeting but you know even for someone like myself who you know feels like you, you know feels like you've done it all before it's it is quite kind of liberating and empowering so i would say yeah i think it is really important i think we're, we're only at the start of trying to figure out well what well what do we do with that observation in fact that it is important and I would say, of course, you know, what you find out in the consciousness rating group, it is just, you know, what you know already, if you know enough of the theory. It is true that what well, we all know already, you know, it is really a, a key feature of being someone who's interested and engaged with sort of radical thought and radical politics in the early 21st century, that we all know on some level that, you know, there's no such thing as the individual, that we're all kind of social composites, you know, that we're all, you know, we all contain multitudes. You know, it's not just sort of political theory that tells us that or political philosophy. It's also, you know, just contemporary neuroscience and biology and sort of anthropology and genetics. But but also we're living in a culture where all of its sort of dominant institutions for the past sort of 400 years have been committed to sort of this ideal of what it means to be a human being to me to be a completely self-contained appetitive sort of you know self-interested entrepreneurial sort of individual and that's been really deeply intensified under neoliberalism where the, the whole project of neoliberalism you know has been you know in margaret thatcher's famous phrase you know economics is the means the the object is to change the heart and soul you know that the project has been to turn us into a particular kind of person you know, highly individualized, highly competitive, you know, highly alienated kind of person. And so I think we all need all the help in just learning to kind of actually live in, you know, day to day and interact with people in a meaningful way, uh, in a way that isn't kind of weighed down with that individualist uh, baggage. Is there also a sense in which that sort of intensification of individualization is also necessary because of the sort of increasing sociality of contemporary capitalism? 
Yeah, well, that's always been, you know, that was always Marx's analysis of the, of the fundamental contradiction of capitalism. Mm. Marx always said the fundamental contradiction of capitalism is it socialises production while it sort of privatises and individualises the experience of being in a labour market and the experience of being a consumer. Yes, I, I think the answer to that is yes. I think, and this is sort of something that Hart and Negri are onto. I mean, Hart and Negri come in for a lot of criticism for the, I should say, you know, Michael Hart and Tony Negri, uh, who's the authors of a series of books uh, from the late 90s onwards, and who come out of the Italian autonomous tradition, they sort of referred to a little bit already. Around 2000, they're arguing, I mean, they're, they're making this argument, which is, is almost sort of saying, well, communism is now inevitable, because like in the age of the internet, like we're, we can all communicate with each other. And therefore, you know, we, we abs- and coordinate our actions with each other very easily. And we don't need, we clearly don't need capital for anything. And the problem with their analysis is they never say anything about neoliberalism. And I think that's, the, but I think they're sort of right. And I thought that, you know, to get the correct analysis of the situation, you just have to add to their understanding of what's going on at a certain level of technology and social relations the understanding that well capital and its agents have this whole neoliberal apparatus which is as you say precisely is designed to intensify sort of individualization and make us experience ourselves as competitive individuals because if we don't then indeed you know we're all the tools are now at our fingertips in some sense to just um to coordinate our activity in a way that they, it's never been possible before on the current scale You've mentioned how some of the people at Plan C have, you know, sort of found it difficult to to do more of this kind of work because, you know, lack of time and, and resources. And, and one obvious issue with attempting to develop or, or revive the counterculture, and I think you've, you've discussed this before, but obviously the, the counterculture of the 60s and 70s depended on those quite sort of benign material conditions of that era. High growth rates, rising wages, a much less punitive benefit system than, than exists today. And I also think that extends into the 80s to some extent, even though it's all under attack. There's still more of that legacy in the 80s than there is in the 90s. And I, and I think it's funny in a way that the 80s is seen as this sort of apogee of um, Thatcherite individualism and situation in the 90s and, and subsequently is, is much worse, in, in, in fact. But how is a counterculture going to be created when you've got people who, you know, the people who might create it are badly paid, precariously employed and underemployed? And I wonder if there are sort of maybe different historical parallels, um, maybe from sort of the early days of the labour movement that might be more relevant on that question of, of, of material conditions. Well, I think there might be. I mean, the analogies are always complicated because I, I always say, I mean, in terms of the history of the labour movement from, say, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution right up to the 1940s, uh, it's really unclear where we are right now. I would say before like the 2017 election, I used to say, yeah, we were in about 1810. You know, we've got probably got 100, <laughs> probably got 100 years to go. Yeah. But I used to say, well, it might not be. You know, the technology is accelerating everything. You know, we might be a lot you know, further along than that in figuring out how to, you know, organise ourselves effectively in this new technological paradigm. And, I mean, the 2017 election result, I think, made clear that it's not going to take 100 years. And we probably haven't got 100 years now anyway, because of climate change. But I think, I mean, it's absolutely right. And it's a point I sort of, you know, made several times before that, indeed, the counterculture is the condition, you know, the condition of possibility for the counterculture is post-war social democracy. And I would say, 
like what happens if you get a generation of people who for the first time in human history uh, don't know kind of poverty precarity you know really ha- you know they, they're not living a hand-to-mouth hunter-gatherer existence i mean maybe you could say in prehistory if, if you believe that that you know people were happier but the first time since the invention of agriculture you know people um, you have a whole a generation in in europe in western europe in the united states uh, where most people uh, you know are, are well fed they're looked after they're educated they're not worried about where their next meal is coming from or they're not worried about what's going to happen to their job next year and the answer to the question what happens then is oh you get a massive wave of like democratic demands like you know for the overturning of all hierarchy like you know, including hierarchies that have been in place for thousands of years mm. you know in the form of patriarchy and neoliberalism is basically the response to that you know the adoption of neoliberal ideas and practices by capital and its agents in the state is the response to that and its response is basically predicated on an implicit assumption that you better never let that happen again you better never ever again have a situation where most of the population don't feel precarious and insecure and are not in massive debt because you see what happens when that when you let that occur the thing is you might conclude from that you know that well actually if we want another counterculture in the future we're just going to have to go through the sort of 40s and 50s again we should stop like all this stupid, like, you know, faffing about with consciousness raising groups and acid, this and that and countercultural demands. Podcasts. We should just get on podcast. Exactly. We should just get on with building social democracy. You know, get on with just building, you know, just get on with it, you know, building traditional social democracy. That's what people really want. You know, they don't want all of this stuff. And I would say, why that is mistaken is because we are still in a historical moment which is after the 60s and 70s and in fact i would say all the evidence is that none of the kind of desires which manifest themselves in the political and cultural field in the 60s and 70s have gone away people still want the level of kind of personal freedom and the level of sort of social freedom which people wanted then people want the level of participation and kind of you know democratic you know, leverage, which people were sort of arguing for and demanding then. I think a big part of why social media have become so popular so quickly is precisely because it gives people a, a feeling of sort of collective agency and kind of, you know, sort of horizontal self-organisation. And it's not just a feeling. It, I mean, it is a reality in, to some extent in a lot of contexts. So I think all those desires just haven't gone away. So we are faced with a situation where to some extent, we are going to have to do both things at the same time. We are at the same time going to have to sort of restore so something like social democracy while at the same time radicalising it in a way that the new left of the 60s and 70s wanted to. Now, of course, that isn't at all, actually. what In practice, what does that mean? In practice, that just means, you know, what implementing the kind of programme that the sort of leading edge of the, the Labour Party's current policy thinkers are arguing for anyway. You know, the Labour Party's kind of economic programme right now is, you know, we're told it's not just to kind of nationalise a bunch of industries and administer mm. them from Whitehall, which is what happened in the 50s. It's to introduce an economic policy which is designed to facilitate, you know, workers' ownership of businesses, the creation and economic success of cooperatives, a kind of real democratisation of the economy. Uh, and that's what the kind of political, institutional and economic sort of wing of those sort of movements of the 60s and 70s wanted anyway. So I think really, I mean, the conclusion you get from a sort of, you know, acid communist, acid communist analysis is that, well, is just that, is that, well, it's absolutely, it's that stuff has to be seen as central 
to the programme of any future sort of social democratic government. It's got to be as sort of democratising as possible and it's got to see itself, I would say, as carrying out the kind of programme that the radical left wanted to carry out in the 70s before it was basically defeated by neoliberalism. And rather than seeing itself as wanting to carry out the radical programme of the 40s and 50s, Mm. And of course, that is a real difference. It's a real difference within the pro-Corbyn movement and the Labour Party, and that there is a tradition which is associated with the Morning Star and with the Communist Party, which basically still regards the Communist Party of Great Britain's 1950s document, The British Road to Socialism, which proposed to build socialism in one country with a sort of, you know, with a parliamentary democracy. But and they still regard that as the sort of blueprint they want to follow. That's why they want to do Lexit and they want to do Brexit because they think getting us out of the European Union will make it easier to do socialism in one country. And there's another wing, this is sort of John McDonald wing, which really looks to the kind of libertarian socialism of the 70s and early 80s as a model and wants to, you know, and wants, you know, indeed to sort of carry forward that programme, a programme which is more informed by ideals of workers' control and sort of economic democracy. And I think anti Corbynism, again, you know, it's arguably a slightly frivolous term for a position which is, is actually sort of making a sort of very serious set of claims about where we are historically and how our current moment relates to past moments. But the, the, but we are making a serious claim. And the logical conclusion of that claim would be that, indeed, the sort of McDonald project is absolutely the right one. And, um, and we and we need to be behind that. Mm. Um, but there's no question that that is... That is the, the kind of economic element of that program is the precondition for a sort of cultural program, uh, which would sort of, you know, facilitate or in some way support sort of the development of countercultural forces. But I think in the given, the, say, the current politics of the Labour Party, it's still the case. And it's been you know, as it has been in some case, in some ways for decades that we do. We're still having to make the argument and the argument is still to be made for, for like a radical cultural program. So you look at the 2017 manifesto, a lot of the economic program, a lot of it is very radical. But the, the proposals for like cultural policy are just, you know, they could have been written by Oliver, you know, Oliver Letwin. You know, the programs are cut apart from there's a few things about, you know, giving kids, you know, violin lessons in schools. But broadly speaking, it's it's all framed in the language of creative industries and the, you know, the need for, you know, government policy to support our brilliant creative industries. Is this partly to do with the fact that at the day-to-day level we, we tend to think of culture in terms of pleasure and, and recreation and so it's it's hard for people to conceive of it as being a really core part of a political project? Yeah, it's that. It's the fact that within the sort of policy-making community, you know, the only people anybody talks to are economists hmm. and you've got to go around claiming to be an economist even if you're clearly not one if you, if you want to actually have any input to that anyway. <laughs> do, you, do you have anyone in mind, Jeremy? No, I don't. <laughs> I'm talking hypothetically. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a big problem, and that and that is a function of neoliberal hegemony. You know that wasn't the case. Like if you go back to the '60s, you know the Wilson government. Yeah, you know, they're not listening. Yeah, they're listening. They're obviously they're listening to economists, but they're not listening very hard. But they're sort of listening to sociologists as well. Mm. They're sort of you know, there's a sort of fantasy in current circulation that like Raymond Williams was like really influential in, in public culture at the time, which is complete nonsense. Like they were they were not listening to Raymond Williams or people like that, but. 
they weren't only listening to economists and the, the complete kind of hegemony of, of economics as the only kind of social science discipline that even gets sort of paid attention to by policymakers it is a function of neoliberal and part of neoliberal hegemony and we won't have really broken it until there are some people who are not economists involved in the policymaking processes and that is one reason why sort of cultural you know cultural policy decisions even really thought about and that would be one of the things that we would want to argue for. I think we would want to argue for the idea that, well, a political movement and a radical political party has to have a has to have a sort of, you know, radical cultural programme. Of course, the, the historic precedent for that in Britain would be the GLC in mm. the early 80s. You know, the GLC, you know, is a key kind of reference point for lots and lots of people. And the GLC obviously wasn't exactly, you know, I mean, the GLC wasn't a sort of, you know, psychedelic project in any way. Um, but it was informed by the by the sort of liber- libertarian socialist politics, um, which is the kind of nearest British equivalent to the politics of people like Negri and Lazzarato and Guattari. And, you know, they had a really radical cultural programme of kind of explicitly challenging uh, racism, explicitly challenging homophobia uh, and sexism. And, for example, of kind of re, redeploying uh, municipal funds away from like the high arts and elite arts towards community arts, that had a really, really hugely dramatic effect on, on sort of cultural life of London and social life of London, which all of which got them totally kind of attacked, just hysterically attacked, never mind by the Tory press, but also by the sort of socially conservative wing of the Labour movement at the time almost all of which, even including the sort of cultural policy, would now be regarded as just normal, as the stuff that even you would expect even sort of, you know, relatively liberal conservative administrations to do. Mm. So I think a sort of honouring, you know, getting Labour to kind of honour that legacy of cultural radicalism and that part of Corbyn and McDonald's own political history, I think is, you know, is one of the things that we're sort of interested in, in trying to do. I wouldn't say that, you know, what the Asi Corbynist group right now, which is, you know, doing, which is doing a, doing a few talks here and there and doing a podcast is doing, is likely to be able to do that. I mean, we, we don't have pretensions to sort of launching a full scale sort of political, you know, faction, but, you know, we're trying to contribute to a climate of discussion and a climate of ideas and, and the circulation of ideas, which are, from which we hope, um, a growing sense of the importance of some of these issues might uh, continue to develop. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.